This morning, our Pastor Alex is with our brothers and sisters at St. Andrews in Fergus. This is an important Sunday for them, and we'll have a chance to pray for them later on, but they are hearing um, uh, Peter Bush is preaching for the call this morning, and so we want to pray for them later uh, as they are discerning this. And uh, so that's where Pastor Alex is. He serves as interim moderator, so it's part of his duty to be there and present this morning. So we are delighted that we have our own Ralph Neal with us. Uh, for those of you uh, that don't know, Ralph and Bonnie have been uh, beloved members of our congregation for many years now, and I'd love to tell you just a little bit about Ralph. Uh, he studied chemistry and physics at Queen's University, and then went on to theology at Knox College. You can ask him about the connection between those subjects, perhaps, <laughs> at a later time. Um, I'm sure he can make those connections for you. Uh, after being ordained, he went on to pastor congregations in the Baptist Convention of Ontario and Quebec, and before moving to Guelph, um, in re- so he's served in these roles before moving to Guelph in retirement and joining us here at Courtright. And since then, Ralph has served in an interim role in the, that capacity in three churches, and the first of which was Courtright prior to Pastor Alex's arrival. The last was St. Andrew's in Streetsville. So Ralph and his wife, Bonnie, have two children and eight perfect grandchildren. You can ask them how they did that later, too. Um, and Ralph and Bonnie really are pretty amazing. Uh, they've been one of the driving forces behind our active seniors ministry, the Joy Group, which was mentioned earlier. Uh, they were part of the team who actually started the Joy Group, and this has the Joy Group has grown famous throughout the land through its monthly potlucks and its warm fellowships. So we are delighted to have uh, Ralph, one of our own, who will be speaking with us and uh, bringing the word for us this morning. So Ralph, I'd love to invite you up and to pray for you. God, we give you great thanks for Ralph and Bonnie. We thank you for the tremendous gift that they are to us, and we thank you for uh, the way that you have captivated his mind and his heart and the way that he loves you dearly and loves to share about who you are. So we pray, Lord, that you would come now and that you would, um, in your spirit, fill him and anoint him to speak your truth to us this morning and pray that you would help us to have eyes to see and ears to hear the truth that you have for us. And we pray your blessing on him and Bonnie in your name. Amen. I think the squeaking is my knees, isn't it? <laughs> it's a qualification to be a member of the Joy Group. <clears throat> I'm in trouble already. <laughs> well, it is a, a privilege to... Uh, I, I envy Alex having this, this congregation to preach to and to pastor. Um, so it's always a treat for me to uh, pinch hit for him when, uh, yeah, when he needs it. Uh, our scripture this morning is uh, from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and I'm going to read for you the NIV, the New International Version, as it's appearing before you on the overhead. On the overhead. Boy, there's a throwback. <laughs> I think it's going to be a long morning. Hear the word of God as it's recorded in the first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 11 and beginning at verse 17. The Apostle Paul is writing in the following directives. I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And to some extent, I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval 
So then, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat, for when you're eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Are you, do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this, whenever you drink it, in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. That is why many among you are weak and sick and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not finally be condemned with the world. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. Anyone who is hungry should eat something at home so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. And when I come, I will give further directions. This is the word of God. Well, given that our pastor has launched us into a a study of 1 Corinthians, and given that this is Communion Sunday, there is no better passage for us to be considering this morning than this one from chapter 11. This is a passage which answers all the key questions we have about the Lord's Supper. Why are we doing this? Who is it for? What's its meaning? And the answers are pretty clear in the text which we've just read. We're doing this because Jesus told us to do this twice in this passage. He says, do this in remembrance of me. And as to its meaning... Well, clearly, these are symbols that speak about the death of Jesus. And the Lord's table, the Lord's supper, is to remind us of his death for us. And who is it for? Well, that's fairly obvious, too. It's for Christians. It's for people who profess Jesus as Savior, who call him their Savior, who acknowledge that they need him to take away their sin, to square things between them and God. So those are the the key questions, the basic questions. But there's another one that I want to consider with you this morning that this text also helps us answer. And the question that I want to pursue with you is this one. What's the purpose of the Lord's Supper? What did Jesus intend it to do? Because it is to do something for us. And that's what I want to consider with you this morning. And you'll find that there are two answers that our text gives as to why we're supposed to do this, what it's to do for us. And the first is stated overtly in our text this morning. It has to do with 
doing something for us as individual Christians. That's the first thing. The Lord's table is designed to minister to us individually. You see, Jesus knows our hearts so well. He knows that we are, as the old hymn says, prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. And Jesus designed this supper to meet that particular tendency within us. You remember he warned us um, in the parable of the sowers. You remember that parable? I'm not going to detail it for you, but there are four categories of soil on which the sower sows the seed, which is representative of the word of God. And the, the third category is, is a seed which falls among thorns and the thorns spring up and choke the word. And Jesus uses that as an example, as an illustration of what happens to too many people who begin well in the Christian life. But then he says the cares of this life and the deceitfulness of riches spring up and choke the word and it becomes unfruitful, doesn't bring anything to harvest. Well, the Lord Jesus has given us the supper to prevent that from happening for us. And as often as we come to this table, as often as we break the bread and take it into ourselves, drink the wine, he's reminding us of what's really important. And he says, as we come to the table, you need me. And this is what I've done for you. My body was broken for you. My blood was shed for you so that you could be forgiven and given a new life with God. And so when we come to the table, he's saying, this is how much I love you. And I want you to know that. He wants us to come to the table then and become more aware than ever before that we are ransomed, healed, restored, forgiven, as another hymn says. The Lord Jesus, as we come here, wants to meet us in such a way that we go out saying, the Lord was in this place. And we, we, we go out echoing another hymn which says, My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross. And I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh, my soul. That's what Jesus wants to happen in you and me if we come to this table believing, trusting him and him alone. So that's the first great purpose that the Lord's table is designed to achieve in our lives, just to nail home deep into our souls these glorious truths. But there is another reason why the Lord has given us this table. And this I want to spend a little more time on because I suspect it's one that you and I don't think, probably we don't think at all about it, but if if we do, we don't think enough about it. And that is that the Lord's table, the communion service, is intended to do something for all of us together. It's intended for us corporately, not just individually. Now, I want to just give a bit of uh, preparation for the point I want to make here. I've got to step back a bit because I suspect most of us here this morning have been reared in evangelical churches. And one of the great strengths of evangelicalism is its insistence on personal Faith on personal accountability before God, on personal responsibility to hear the gospel and to respond to it in repentance and faith so that personally we choose Jesus to be our Savior and Lord. and We commit ourselves to him. And that's a tremendous strength of evangelicalism. 
It's the same strength, however, that becomes a tremendous weakness in some ways. And one of our, probably, I think our, our most glaring weakness as evangelical Christians is that we downplay or completely ignore the importance of church in terms of, in, in God's mind. The importance of church for what he is intending to do on the earth. And I wanted to spend a, a bit of time reinforcing that point for you. And, and to begin with, I want to take you to Jesus' words, which were on the screen a minute ago, and I hope reappear for you. But you know the first uh, verse here, the first two verses, um, I'm sure you've you probably sung them, you've memorized them, where Jesus is simply saying to us, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, you must love one another. And then he says this, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples. It seems that when other people see the love we have for one another, they will know that we belong to Jesus together. But now add the next verse. And this we may not be as familiar with. This verse is, is from the great prayer Jesus prays on the night in which he was betrayed. We call it his great high priestly prayer in John 17. But he's praying this. First of all, he, on that night, he prays for himself. He prays for the twelve, the disciples. Actually, Judas has disappeared by this point. He prays for the eleven. And then he prays for all those who will come to believe in him through the testimony of the apostles. And that includes us. So here's what he's praying. John 17, verse 20. I pray also for those who will believe in me. That's you and me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be, and most versions add the word one here because it's, it's called for, may they also be one in us that the world may believe that you have sent me. So he's praying for our unity as a body, but notice why. So that the world will see Jesus in us. And will believe that God has sent him. That he's all that he claimed to be. In other words, Jesus gives the world permission to judge him. By what it sees between us. <laughs> I heard that. That wasn't any man, it was an ouch. You begin to get the sense that together we are important in the sight of God for his purposes. And uh, I want to, it's tempting to go on and, and just add verse to verse here, but we haven't got the time. I want to take you into the letter to the Ephesians, however. If you have any doubts at all about the importance of the church, all of us together in the economy of God, you must read Ephesians. The whole letter is about this very thing. But I'm going to take you to chapter 5. In this passage that I'm going to refer to, the apostle is giving counsel to husbands and wives, as to how they're, they're to behave to each other. And when he's talking to husbands, he brings in Jesus and the church. And I want you to hear this part. He says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her. Now, I wonder if you even think about this. He loves the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Now, there's a picture of what will happen 
on the last day when Jesus gathers all of his own to himself and presents us to the Father all together in perfected form, but all together. And that's the message, as I say, of Ephesians from beginning to end. Uh, it points out in, in so many different ways that we need one another if we're to grow to, to what he's talking about here, if the church be, will be, is to become what, what he's talking about, radiant, perfect. But the verse in Ephesians that absolutely takes my breath away is from chapter 3, verse 10. And here the Apostle Paul is, is talking about God's intention in dying for us and gathering us together into one body. And he says this, His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. Okay, the last bit is talking about angels and demons, the whole spiritual realm. And what he's saying in this verse is that God's purpose is to demonstrate his own glory to the angels and demons in us. When he's finished with us, in other words, he's going to be able to put us forward as exhibit A, saying to the demons, you doubted my wisdom, behold the church. Saying to the angels, you wondered what I was up to, look at the glory that's in the church. As I say, that really takes my breath away. But it, it all, let me sum it up this way. Much as Jesus loves you, and he does, much as Jesus loves you, he loves us more. Can I say that again? Much as Jesus loves you, he loves us more. Uh, I guess I, I need to uh, point out, you've been seeing scripture verses up there. This isn't scripture. This is, this is me. <laughs> and you need, maybe I should have used a different color. But I think this is a fair inference from the scriptures that I've been quoting to you and many others. Much as he loves us as individuals, he loves us together even more. Much as he intends to make you perfect as a believer, he intends to do that for us together even more. And much as he's gone to prepare a place for you and is coming again to receive you to himself, he's going to do that for us even more together. Where does communion come into all this? Okay, now we can come to this. Communion is intended to seal and deepen our unity in Christ. There's an old communion hymn that starts off, I come with joy to meet the Lord, forgiven and free. And it goes on to say, as Christ breaks bread for us to share, each proud division ends. The love that made us makes us one. And strangers now are friends. How does that work? Well, simply this way. As you and I come to the table, we're making a statement not only to Jesus about our love for him and our trust in him, but we're making a statement to one another. And what I'm making, the statement I'm making to you as you see me coming to the Lord's table is, I'm the sinner for whom Christ died. And you're making the same statement to me. And, and what that means is that the communion service begins by leveling us all, right? Nobody is 
higher than anybody other than anybody else when it comes to Jesus when it comes to what we deserve from God we all deserve condemnation we deserve hell but his son has gone through hell so that we don't have to so as we come to the table we're coming together acknowledging that we without Jesus we don't have a prayer but because of Jesus we do we're in his family And as we look at each other coming to the table, we're reminded, here's a brother, here's a sister, in him, all one, in Jesus. And the hymn writer's correct then, isn't he? All proud divisions fall away from us. All the stuff that people divide off from each other out there have no place here. They fall away. They're insignificant. So we don't have educated people congregating over here and uneducated people over there. And we don't have wealthy people here and less wealthy people, poor people over here. And we don't divide up on the basis of race. We don't divide up on the basis of class. Nothing like that comes between us. We're one in Christ. Well, that brings us back to Corinth. Because as you gathered from the whole passage I read for you, there was something really wrong in Corinth around the the celebration of communion. Now, from the records of the early church, we know that the church didn't celebrate communion as we do now, but rather it celebrated it as part of what was called the agape, a love feast. It was it was kind of like a potluck supper, right, where everybody brought whatever they had And those who had lots brought lots and those who didn't couldn't, but they came and everybody participated together. And in the course of this participation in this love feast, they would celebrate the Lord's Supper. And it was beautiful. And it was well, it was it was singing about all the stuff we've been talking about right now. The only thing was that not long after the Apostle Paul left Corinth and moved on in his missionary journey, they began to get it all wrong. And you, you heard it in the passage I read for you. Um, in, instead of all partaking together, well, the people who got there first with all their stuff would eat. And the people who came later, often maybe slaves, bringing very little, would eat a little later. And the people who got there first with lots would pig out. And the people who got there little with less, some of them went hungry. And the apostle, as he's hearing all the of, of what the story of what's going on, is horrified. And so he, he gives, I think, the most solemn warning you can ever hear in the scriptures. In, uh, in this very passage, he says, Whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink Judgment on themselves. And then he goes on to say, and that's what's actually happened in your city, in in your church. He says, that's why some of you are weak and sick and some of you are fallen asleep, i.e. have died. Well, fortunately, God doesn't do that all the time when we come to the Lord's table in an unworthy manner. But the question, I guess, is the obvious question is, what does he mean by an unworthy manner? It used to be, by the way, the King James didn't help any in this this regard. If you grew up in the King James, what you you read in this passage was whoever eats and drinks unworthily. And so from time to time, you'd hear people who 
passed the element spy at communion. And when asked why, they were, I, I, I'm not worthy. Uh, they had it backwards. If, if ever you think you are worthy enough to come to communion, you are not worthy enough to come to communion. The Lord's table is for people who know they are unworthy in themselves. Because he wants to make us worthy in Jesus. So to eat and drink in an unworthy manner is simply failing to understand what the table is telling us about ourselves. I am the sinner for whom Christ died. And Jesus, in his mercy and grace, has given himself that I might be forgiven and made his adopted son. There's another expression in here which is synonymous with, he says, um, if you eat, don't eat, he warns us against eating and drinking in an unworthy manner. And then there's a, there's a, a, a phrase which is almost synonymous with this. He says, if you eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ. Now, what he's talking about is us. Next week, uh, you're going to hear a message from chapter 12, which is really getting into the nitty-gritty of what it means to be the church, the body of Christ, each one of us part of it. But not to, not to presume on, on that message that you'll hear next week. We are the body of Christ. And if we come to the table the way the Corinthians were, we are failing to discern the body that's here, the body of Christ, which is precious to him. And we become guilty of sinning against the body and blood of Jesus. Not because they're literally present here, but because the body was broke, his body was broken, his blood was shed so that we could be that glorious body that we've been hinting at and, and talking around for a few moments this morning. If we, if we trash that, the way the Corinthians were trashing the whole notion, then we have sinned against the body and blood of the Lord. So he says, discern, recognize what's here. It's really interesting that it used to be that this this warning passage was used by the church to warn unbelievers not to take communion. And I it's not a good idea if you don't know Jesus, if you haven't committed your life to him. It's not a good idea to take this because this is for people who have committed themselves to Jesus. But. Do you notice in this who this this warning passage is aimed at? It's not aimed at non-Christians. It's aimed at us, at Christians. And what it's warning us to do about is is that we we can't allow anything in us or from us to disrupt the unity of the body of Christ, or we become guilty uh, against His body and blood. We can't allow anything in us. And the devil is constantly working at us to destroy our unity, just to insinuate thoughts against one another, hard thoughts. We assume somebody's done something to hurt us. We, we assume the worst and, and, and on it goes. What this passage is saying is you don't want to do that. You want to recognize when the devil is at work and trying to destroy the unity and you can't allow anything in you or from you to harm the unity of the body of Christ. And on the positive side, then it's calling us to do everything in our power to build up the body of Christ, the church, 
to encourage those who are faltering, to care for those in need. Uh, when they, I met with a pastoral staff earlier this week and we were talking about this passage and we all agreed that at this point, um, when I, in, in the sermon, it, it shouts for some examples of what it is to care for the, the church and to build up his body. But the more we got talking, the more we realized that the stories we knew can't be told because they're private, they're personal. All I can say is that on the last day, when we all stand before Jesus and the church in its glory is seen, many of the things that I would love to talk to you about this morning that go on here all the time, people caring for people, people loving people, they'll be seen for what they are. So how are we to come to the Lord's table? Well, the last... uh, Exhortation here, the last instruction we're given is in verse 28. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. So as I'm preparing to come to the Lord's table, I need to be asking myself some some questions personally, just about my my personal relationship with Jesus. Do I believe that I am indeed the sinner who for whom he died? Or do I think I'm a cut above everybody else and don't need a savior? Or maybe I think I just need a little bit of help. Or do I see that Jesus and Jesus alone can can bring me to God? Does my life show his glory the way it's supposed to? Granted, I won't show his glory perfectly, but is his glory being seen from me more and more? And then as I think about the church, his body, Do I love the church the way Jesus loves the church? Do I love my fellow members of this congregation as brothers and sisters in Christ? Where somebody has injured me, do I forgive? Do I care for people around me who are struggling? Am I guarding my thoughts so that I don't, even, I, I don't sin against others even in my thought, uh, my thought life. The warning is given to us, or the, not, not to scare us off, right? Don't forget the beginning, how we began. Jesus says, do this, do this in remembrance of me. And we thought about what he wants to do as we come. But let's not come lightly. Let's not come casually. But let's do what he says. Let's take a moment of silent prayer and examine ourselves before we come to eat from the bread and drink from the cup. Let's pray together, just, just silently.